on this gray New York Sunday morning. I'd like to invite you to take just a moment uh, to look around the sanctuary and appreciate who the people are who are present today. Take just a moment to do that if you're comfortable. Take just a moment to remember as we center ourselves in worship how good it is to be the church. How good it is to be the church. In the passage of scripture from the New Testament book of Acts that Kingsley read for us moments ago, we were afforded this glimpse of what the cadence of life and ministry was like in the first century church. And the glimpse that we're offered is heartwarming in its content, really. But I would encourage you not to romanticize the church that you see in that glimpse. Because as the book of Acts continues to unfold, we see that that first century church did not take very long to experience internal conflict and theological territorialism and painful division. It is, after all, the church. And in the church back then, just as in the church of today, brokenness and beauty are intimate companions in the church's pilgrimage. And yet, every once in a while, followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus desperately need a glimpse of the church at its best. And that is precisely what the scripture from the New Testament book of Acts offers to us, a glimpse of the church at its best, a glimpse of inspired people who are so inwardly transformed by the reality of Jesus and so utterly reconfigured by the priorities of his way that they begin to incarnate in their daily practices what I would describe as a countercultural narrative about who God is and what a life in God might look like. And we're told some specific things about the patterns of life in this first century church, interesting things. We're told that the people spent plenty of worshipful time in the sanctuary, but we're also told that they spent plenty of relational time in their homes, eating, breaking bread with one another, tasting their food with glad and generous hearts. We're also told that they made it a priority to take care of one another paying particularly close attention to those who were in desperate need. And they also welcomed newcomers. So important. They welcomed newcomers who were drawn to the dynamism of the Christian story. And here is how the book of Acts describes how the people were responding to the ministry of that first century church. Here's what the book of Acts says about the reaction of the people. Awe came upon everyone. Ah, A-W-E, which is a translation of a Greek word, phobos, from which we derive the English word phobia. And I mention that only to make the point that what's being described here is not a passing curiosity, but rather the kind of astonishment that seems to stop time for a few moments. The people were awestruck over the ministry of the early church. Why? Because, we are told in Scripture, the people saw that the apostles were accomplishing signs and wonders. That's the language of scripture, signs and wonders in the context of the church's ministry. The people were in awe, phobos, 
because they were seeing signs and wonders in the ministry of the church. Friends, that is our DNA. That's part of who we are, signs and wonders. And it compels me to ask, and I'm not presupposing what your particular answer would be, but I do wonder how many of you have come to believe that the church has the potential to be something more than an institution? How many of you, let me ask the question a different way, how many of you have come to believe that the church is a setting in which authentic signs and wonders might be generated for the cause of Jesus Christ? Hmm. How many of you have not come to believe that because of one experience or another? And what do you think is getting in the way of the possibility of your believing that? It takes me back to when I was a 12-year-old because one day when I was 12 in worship on a Sunday, I was inspired to walk down the center aisle of a crowded sanctuary in order to experience a time of personal prayer at the altar. Something, by the way, that that very shy 12-year-old never thought that he would do. And I went to the altar for personal prayer that day, not because of any spiritual manipulation. Please understand, it wasn't that kind of a context, wasn't that kind of a church setting. But I went because it was the final hymn during Sunday morning worship, and during the final hymn, the altar was open for prayer. It said it right there in the bulletin. Something that day inspired me to think that the time had come as a 12-year-old for me to go public with some of my faith commitments. And so I went forward and I prayed at that altar because it was important to me. These were people, after all, who watched me grow up through the early portion of my childhood. And I wanted them to know that I was starting to get serious about bringing my life into alignment with the faith story that they were working so hard to teach me. So I prayed, and I don't remember how I prayed or what I prayed, but what I remember from that day vividly is that following worship, three adult leaders in that congregation, two women and a man, sought me out. And they asked for permission, and that's the right way of describing it, they asked for permission to pray with me. They weren't manipulating the moment, they weren't being spiritually heavy-handed, They simply sat with me in one of the pews and they offered a few simple petitions to God on my behalf, asking God to make God's grace a continuing reality in my life. And when I went home that day, all I could think, all I could think was, wow, this church is a place where important looking adults are willing to devote time to praying over 12 year olds as though they truly believed that 12-year-olds were worth praying over. It was a sign and wonder for me, in effect. And truth be told, I was awestruck, Phobos. Three weeks later, I remember that, three weeks later, a husband and a wife and a child in that congregation lost their home in a house fire. Nobody was injured and we were so grateful for that, but the flames destroyed most of their property. And I remember being traumatized 
as a 12-year-old um, because I hadn't experienced something like that up close and personally before. I remember this unfamiliar sense of vulnerability over my sudden realization of how quickly devastation can occur. And I watched and I listened as that congregation responded to this family in a manner that was as caring as it was comprehensive. Phone calls were made, a place to stay for that family was arranged, clothing was purchased for all of the family members, food and supplies were delivered, advocacy on every level was proffered. And on the Sunday following the fire, that husband, wife, and child came to worship. And during the final hymn, all three of them went to the altar for prayer, that very same altar at which I had prayed three weeks earlier. And I remember standing and watching as other members of the congregation, without prompting, made their way forward and gathered around that kneeling family in a spirit of prayerful encouragement. And while I didn't understand all of it, Something in my 12-year-old consciousness led me to believe that I was witnessing something significant. I was witnessing church at its best. A desperate family experiencing the multi-layered care of a committed congregation, all because of a shared faith in Jesus. It was a sign and wonder for me, quite frankly. And it's not overstating it to say that as a 12-year-old, I was awestruck. Phobos. We hear so much, don't we, about the church at its worst. And it takes me to a place of emotion when I think about how many stories there are that bear witness to the church at its worst. It may be that some of you have experienced some of those stories up close and personally. And if that's at all the case, if you're somebody who has been wounded or rejected or devastated by the church at its worst, it's important to me that you know how seriously I take that pain because I have my own pain in that regard. I really do. And my pain has taught me that the wounds caused by the church at its worst are always accompanied, always accompanied by uniquely deep scars. It may be that some of you bear those scars. But when the church is at its best, when the church is at its best, I'm convinced that there's nothing else in the world quite like it. Because when the church is at its best, faith becomes a window instead of a wall, a lens to look through, not a speech to rehearse. When the church is at its best, people experience healing instead of wounding. They experience compassion instead of condemnation. They experience vibrant and joyful discipleship and not weaponized dogma. In fact, when the church is at its best, 12-year-olds get prayed over and desperate families get showered with the mind-boggling love that Jesus makes possible when the church is at its best. 
in this scripture from the New Testament book of Acts, there are what I would describe as these ministry impulses that I believe leap off of the printed page of scripture and travel across some 2,000 years of history so that they might be able to resonate in this sanctuary this morning. Ministry impulses. And I would suggest to you that the ministry impulses that we see in that early church, remembering what I said, that we're not to romanticize the early church because there are portions of the book of Acts where I think we see the church at its worst. But in this moment, there are these ministry impulses that I believe are timelessly essential and relevant if any church wants to be the church at its best. And the first of those ministry impulses is this sacrificial commitment to bringing the love of Jesus to suffering and marginalized people through the tangibility of ministry that eases their burden. Let me say that one more time. A sacrificial commitment to bringing the love of Jesus to marginalized and suffering and broken people through the tangibility of a ministry that eases their burden. That's a ministry impulse of the church at its best. And what did that look like in the first century church? Well, quite frankly, it looked like a congregation of believers that held everything in common. In fact, we're told in today's scripture that everyone sold their property, held their possessions in common, and resources would be distributed as anyone had need, with particular attention being paid to those who were hurting and suffering. And when I've mentioned that to local churches, they're often quick to point out to me, hey, that sounds a little bit like a socialist setup. To which I normally respond, well, yes, it does sound like a socialist setup, because it was. Now, it didn't last, because as the church expanded, as the church's ministry expanded, the structure, the methodology, the administration had to change. But the fact that the methodology changed should not cause us to lose sight of the ministry impulse that led to the methodology in the first place. That lasts and that impulse is to bring the love of jesus to hurting suffering marginalized people in tangible ways and i'll be honest with you friends there are times especially in recent weeks as i get to know the congregation better there are times when i wake up in the wee hours my mind is racing and in those wee hours i'm thinking about what new and sacrificial ministries of outreach. God is calling Christ Church to offer in the next two years, four years, eight years. I guess I'm dreaming about it. And I guess I'm inviting you to dream with me about that. There's this second ministry impulse that we see in that first century church, and it's the impulse that I would describe this way, um, sacrificial commitment to creating opportunities for things like worship, spiritual formation and Christian education and prayer, so that all the generations of the church, really, and please hear the emphasis upon that, all the generations of the church might find new ways to engage with the divine heart. And what did that look like in the first century church? Well, we're not given the details on that one. This is all that we're told, but doesn't this cover some ground? The people of the early church spent much time together in the temple. 
And what happened in the temple? Well, guess what? The people worshipped and they prayed and they learned the story of faith, which is the essence of Christian education. And they allowed their souls to be shaped by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the context of community. That was life in the early church. That's the ministry impulse. And again, I'm telling you the truth. You can ask Tara. But there are times when I wake up in the wee hours and my mind is racing. And part of what I'm thinking about is what new opportunities is God calling Christ Church to create in the next three years, two years, five years, for things like spiritual formation, prayer, worship, Christian education, so that the people who are already here and the people who are not yet here might be able to find their way into the paragraphs and the chapters of the Christian story. I guess I'm dreaming about it. And I'm asking you to join me in the dreaming. And then a final ministry impulse that I think we find in this first century church and I would describe it as this uh, sacrificial commitment to the nurturing of authentic, caring relationships. You know, relationships have always been so central to the church. I don't know how you're finding things in this post-pandemic world, but it feels to me like the pandemic did something to our collective hunger for relationship, deepened it. Maybe the isolation, I'm not enough of a sociologist to understand that. But I sense there's a particularized hunger in this time. Even if people aren't able to name it, they know that it's there. A hunger for authentic, trustworthy relationship. A hunger to be loved just for showing up. Known, seen, valued, listened to, sought after. What did that look like in the early church? Well, again, we're not given all of the details, but don't you think it's significant that the writer of the book of Acts tells us that the people did not only spend time together in the temple, they also spend time together in one another's homes eating. Why would that detail be included? Because I think it was the same then as it is now when people gather together to break bread in an intimate space like home. That's not simply about the nourishment of body. That's about the cultivating of relationship. God seems to have arranged it so that hearts become attentive to other hearts when they're in the bodies of people who are breaking bread together. And if I say this one more time, probably you're going to be inclined to say, hey, maybe it's time for this guy to check out some Ambien. But I wake up in the wee hours. I wake up in the wee hours and sometimes I won't know why I'm awake and I'll try to center my thoughts and part of what I'm thinking about is this question of what new spaces for connection is God calling us to create here at Christ Church over the next year, three years, five years, seven years, so that the people who are already here and the people who are not yet, yet here might be reminded of what love looks like when they're tempted to forget. 
and so that love for this congregation will become as natural for us as breathing and every bit as urgent. I guess I'm dreaming about it. And it's really important to me not, that I'm not dreaming alone. I'm asking you to join me in that dreaming. And this isn't merely a sermonic device. I, we need your help in sorting all of this out and in discerning these things. We need your wisdom, we need your voice, we need your perspective, we need your history with the church, whether that history is a week or a year or 50 years. And to that end, in the month of May, in fact, in just a week or maybe two weeks, you will be given an opportunity to participate in something that's, I think, going to be important for us. I'll call it a ministry survey that our staff is finalizing at present. And I see that survey as something that will enable you to bring your voice and your perspective to what I'm considering an important season of discernment related to what our ministry priorities will be for the foreseeable future. And not just our ministry priorities, that sounds like a very technical phrase. What are our ministry dreams for the future of this church, the present and the future of this church? And then down the road a piece, after we gather some of that information through survey, we'll schedule a lunch following worship and maybe a Zoom meeting for those who can't attend the lunch for the purpose of reporting back to you what the surveys revealed, but then also experiencing further conversation with you about what the revelations might imply about the present and future ministry of the church. I think the staff is excited about that. I am. It's not a gimmick. It's not some trendy technique to generate church growth, I can promise you that. But it is, I think, a sacred opportunity for us to begin to bring our hearts and our minds together in developing some common vision for what it will mean for Christ Church New York City to be the church at its best. Not the church at its worst, not the church at its most distorted, but the church at its best in a postmodern, post-pandemic culture in which far too many people have begun to look upon the church as little more than an irrelevant hangout for weekend religionists. And I hope, I really hope you sense the urgency in my spirit about all of this because it's authentic. And part of that urgency comes from this conviction of mine that is deep and lasting that when the church is at its best, there is nothing in the world quite like it. Because when the church is at its best, people experience in the nooks and crannies of its ministry, nothing less than the living, revolutionary presence of Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather for worship, and in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.